If you get a custom tailored suit, it's going to fit perfectly and make you look great. Think about that with a Noble First for your organization. No matter what the size of your company is, a Noble First will analyze your data and collaborate with you to custom tailor digital solutions so you can focus on making your organization grow. When it comes to data centric solutions specifically for your organization, choose a Noble First. A Noble First makes living simple. See for yourself at anoblefirst.com. E N N O B L E First.com. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Hello and welcome to another episode of Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Thanks for joining me on Spotify Greenroom. If you're here live, if you're not here live, that this sounds really weird and you don't know why I'm saying it to you. A big thanks to everyone um, who's helped support us. Uh, we've just changed podcast um, companies, actually. We've gone over to Sports Social. Uh, and so huge thanks and shout out to them. Uh, we, uh, you might be hearing Sports Social at the start. Um, everything else should happen uh, normally. It should be no changes for you. But uh, thank you very much to them. Big shout out to Manscaped as well. Remember, you can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping on all of your mail genital grooming products um you know they've got the deodorant which mcundra loves to use um they've got the underwear which i'm assuming my other producer nick wears um arajotti i don't know what he uh uses for manscaped yet i don't think we've got him any manscaped products but uh, but yeah if you want to trim your testicles in the safest possible way i suggest manscaped uh Big thanks to Bodyline T-shirts as well. And, of course, everyone who uh, sends us money on Buy Me a Coffee. Uh, very much appreciated uh, for that. And also, um, you can support us on Patreon. And the people who support us on Patreon and go at the first class level and above get to ask questions on this here podcast before anyone else. And they have. They have. Ian Price says, is out-and-out out fast bowling sustainable in this era for players who are three-format? Archer, Wood, and Stone have all been beset by injuries in recent years. Is this the combination of the increase in the number of days of cricket and, and the intense strain of 90-mile-an-hour bowling? Uh, some interesting stuff that, that you put in there, um, Ian. The first thing is that being a fast bowler from England has never particularly worked because we haven't actually added any extra days in English cricket than before. They used to play 27 three-day first-class games, um, so the amount of first-class cricket or domestic cricket, if you will, is more or less the same for anyone, uh, which is too much for any fast bowlers anyway. We're certainly understanding platooning now. You know, it's something that we've taken from baseball. But I think you're right. As a rule, I think it'd be very hard to be an out-and-out quick bowler in all three formats now. Uh, Joffre's case is slightly different because he has the ability to gear up or gear down based on the conditions. Uh, you know, his height and his release and his skill set, you know, uh, as we've seen, he took a six-wicket haul. Was it Leeds? I think it was at Leeds. Um, bowling at about 82 miles an hour, right? Like, he he's a different case. 
But guys like Stone and Wood for sure. Um, Tamal Mills, you know, I've talked to him about it a lot. I still think Tamal Mills could get up and play a couple of test matches. Tamal disagrees with me. But the point is that for him to be able to bowl at maximum pace as much as possible, um, it just doesn't make sense for him to play in the other formats of games. You know, uh, so I think that's very, very true. Every country has different sorts of limitations and strengths when it comes to this. But we, I, I would think that if you are an out-and-out pace bowler, uh, you'd probably be better off picking one or two formats and certainly not trying to play all three. I'm not saying that that's the reason Mark Wood gets injured so much, but and I know he wants to play all three, which is very, very fair, but realistically, I don't know. With, I don't know with the modern strains and how far we push bowlers if that is is really going to go. So so the one difference I would say is when they used to bowl the, you know, the 27 games in th and three-day matches in first-class cricket, you talk to a lot of players who played in that era, and they'll be, and they'll tell you that they. I'm trying to think of what, what the best way of putting it is. They didn't go at 100. percent In fact, I talked about this with the international bowler recently about playing county cricket, and he said you play a lot of county cricket between 70 and 85 percent, which means that you can protect your body. International cricket is very rare for you to be able to pull back. Um, it does on occasion; it can happen. Generally, if you're playing in the IPL or you're playing for a franchise league or whatever it is, you're probably playing at much closer to 100%. And if you're a fast bowler, that's not ideal. I'm starting to think that, you know, fast bowlers probably only have so many deliveries in them at their top speed anyway. Um, but, but it's a really good question, Ian. Christopher says, is batting time but striking on, say, uh, uh, below 40 a viable and sustainable way, way to be successful in test cricket? Well, at the moment, if you're averaging you know, over 35, you know, they should give you a knighthood, even if you're not from a country with a knighthood. And I don't even believe in knighthoods. I think they're silly. Um, uh, so, yes, uh, we, we did this on TalkSport yesterday when Neil Manthorpe was throwing to Mark Nicholas and he was saying that surely there is value in a player facing 100 balls per innings, especially when they're an opener and they have the ability to, you know, uh, soften the new ball. And I think we all know that there is value in that. But Dom Sibley did that, and he averaged 84 balls per out. I think that's right, uh, which is an extraordinarily high mark. Uh, you know, it's a lot of balls to face between dismissals. Um, but he averaged under 30, and England got rid of him. They knew what he was like. They basically told him to play that role, and they still didn't like it. I think at the end of the day, runs are still the most important currency, right? Uh, so perhaps if Dom Sibley was playing and the other end was Alistair Cook or, you know, Crawley or Lees or whoever else, whatever else, warm body they hope, you know, gets good in that position and um, does well, um, catches fire, then Sibley blocking the hell out of it really, really helps. Eventually, you do need to be able to make runs. And also, you need to be able to punish the bowlers and put pressure back on the bowlers. There are extreme examples of this that obviously can do it better. Um, Chiteshwa Pajara is probably one. Um <sighs> Um, I'm trying to think, you know, uh, going back through history, cricket history, recent cricket history, you know, Royal Driver's probably another, uh, Michael Atherton, you know, there have been players who have been able to do this. The difference is that they all went on to average quite well. And they also then had other gears. If you only have the Dom Sibley gear, that's a, a big part of the problem. Dom Sibley really doesn't feel comfortable playing his shots until he's on about 140. Um, you know, so... It's a, it's it's certainly a different kind of situation, I think it is fair to say. But it, it's a decent question, and weird enough that we were talking about it yesterday. Uh, Graham says, I found a video on YouTube the other day of Rashid Khan showing Adam Zampa had a bowl leg break out of the back of his hand. 
I haven't seen that. I think a lot of the things that Rashid Khan does um, are probably things that Clary Grimmett and Abdul Qadir did before. Um, I think they're probably the two most famed, successful experimental leg spinners. Um, I think there's probably a lot of little things that those two did that uh, that uh, uh, that Rashid Khan does. For instance, the finger wronging um, is something that Abdul Qadir, if not invented, then certainly. Um, uh, I don't know, what's the best way? Uh, made good, made popular. Um, he then taught that to Shahid Afridi and Anil Kumble, and obviously that's a delivery that Rashid Khan now bowls. So I, I do think that there is, um, uh, there's possibility that people like uh, Abdul Qadir have had uh, different kinds of uh, things uh, things like that. But in the last, I want to say, I suppose it's 10 years, but certainly in the last five years, I think Rashid Khan, uh, R. Ashwin, um, you know, players like Chakravarti, uh, even Imran Tahir, I think because of the close uh, footage that we now have and the amount of stuff that they could see, um, they're, they're experimenting with wrist positions, finger positions. So it wouldn't surprise me if every now and again, Graham, uh, someone like Rashid Khan came up with a slight variation on leg spin. I didn't get to check out the video, sorry, um, but but I'll but I'll have a look and see what I can find. I, you know, might try and ask um, uh, Zampa if I can get hold of him as well. Uh, James says, as a fellow Victorian of a certain age, I often wondered uh, how quick was Brad Williams at his fastest? Uh, how would he have gone at international level if picked then rather than years later? It's a very good question, James. For those who don't remember, Brad Williams was a player who, by the time you saw him playing test cricket, he was probably bowling top 80s. Um, I, I've talked to Mark Butcher. Mark Butcher faced him, I would say, near his peak. I think, did he break Mark Taylor's arm or fingers in a in a shield game certainly rattled him on the arm uh i don't I, I think i'm trying to think brad williams is almost like a combination of ryan harris um uh i'm trying you know a, you know a big body fast bowler but then he rushed through the crease there was almost a bit of was a macram um at, at times in the way that he sort of went through incredibly strong uh, obviously incredibly fast uh, muscle twitch fibers. Look, I don't think they needed him at the time, James, is the reason that they didn't pick him. If you're talking about whether they should have picked him at top pace, yes. Um, I don't think we have that much proof with Brad Williams, um, although obviously I saw a lot of him play domestically. But if you look at, I would say Sean Tate and Ben Hilfenhaus are two perfect examples of guys who by the time they were chosen for Australia probably had slowed down a little bit. Because the strain of bowling at that particular... I mean, Ben Hilfenhaus was bowling low 90s outswing. Um, incredible. Uh, you know, control. He had everything going for him. Basically never really got above high 80s that much after that in, in that part of his career. Um, and was probably, you know, mid-80s really um, for a lot of that time. The, the Sean, uh, Sean Tate and Ben Hilfenhaus, I think, in back-to-back -back seasons... I'm trying to think if it was back-to-back. -back. probably wasn't, actually. But in, in a similar period of seasons, both um, took over 60 shield wickets, which, you know, I think Colin Miller had done that and Chuck Fleetwood-Smith had done that. Um, I don't think anyone else had ever done that, or at the very least, they were very close to those marks, uh, which tells you that they were bowling something that people hadn't bowled before. You know, Colin Miller was two bowlers in one, wasn't he? And uh, Sean and um, Chuck Fleetwood-Smith was probably the best left-arm wrist spinner. Um maybe in the history of the game. Uh, sadly, we didn't see the best of him in, in test cricket, but certainly the best one that had ever existed at that point. So 
you know, Tate and Hilfenhaus having those sorts of numbers does tell you something. I think in general, with fast bowlers, we probably do pick them a little bit too late sometimes, but sometimes it's just because that's how it works, right? You know, uh, there are other players in the team that are already doing well, and are you picking them just because they're fast? Like, Brad Williams was good, but was he going to get wickets particularly because he was fast? I'd have to go back and have a look at his early um, a season. But, yeah, I, it goes back to Ian's question from before, James, that I really do believe that there's only so many fast balls, you know, that you can bowl in your body. We might be able to change that because certainly something we've seen uh, within baseball is bowlers, is, sorry, pitchers putting pace back on later in their career. But we haven't quite worked that out in the same way in, in fast bowlers at the moment. Um, but as it currently stands, you probably, if you, if you want to pick someone just because they're fast, certainly the earlier you pick them, the better. I think that's very, very fair. Um, all right. Atav says, are there any teams of franchise cricket or international T20s who have floating anchor accumulator role? I've always wondered why batting lineups only have high boundary percentage hitters as floaters, not the other way around. Yeah, it, 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 it's a really good question. Uh, it's something that I've been talking about almost from the beginning of working out these roles. It makes sense. I don't know if anyone does it permanently. Um, Darren Bravo sort of did that for the West Indies of recent times. Um, trying to think of other players. I think Steve Smith, is good. Australia's tried to do it with Steve Smith. They just feel uncomfortable doing it with him. But there are certainly players who drop down the order in certain situations. It's hard uh, at off only because a lot of the these sorts of play uh, the players tend to be openers, but you do occasionally get a number three or a number four who will drop down the order uh, because of this. Um, I'm not I can't think of anyone who does it regularly, and that's only because they're probably in different kinds of team environments all the time. Uh, but I think over the next three or four years, uh, I'd be shocked if you don't see more of it. Satchmo says Australia's backup seamers had poor figures in the 2005 Ashes. Was that the main reason they lost? Or was England's use of reverse swing just too good for their batters to counter? Um, uh, so Gillespie was finished and Australia trusted him. And let's be honest, you know, Gillespie's an all-time Australian great bowler. Um, not probably a world great, but certainly a great in Australia and was a fantastic player. It's hard to say that they shouldn't have backed him. Then they also had the problem with Glenn McGrath. That's probably the reason that they didn't win the series. But the bigger thing that they weren't prepared for was England using reverse swing. Was England reverse swinging the ball so early? Uh, and their batters really did struggle with the new ball swinging and then the old ball swinging. Um, that said, I think if Glenn McGrath is fully fit all the way through that series, I think Australia probably still sneak home. Um, so if that's the case, as usual, the bowlers win you series and the batters keep you in the games. But maybe in a short series like that, had the Australians been able to work out the reverse batting a little bit better, um, they might, you know, it was such a close series, I suppose is what I'm saying. So any slight improvement, had they, had they decided that Gillespie was over, um, I think they have a better chance of winning that series. Uh, obviously, if McGrath was fully fit, they have a better chance. But even if they'd found one bat, I mean, we know what Simon Kadic became in Test match cricket. Simon Kadic had any of that kind of form, um, you know, uh, at that stage, you know, he definitely would have helped Australia uh, in that series. And instead, they kind of didn't have anyone helping. That's a really good question. Ray is asking, just how good is Marazan Cap? Uh, top four finishes uh, uh, for the w women's wear on Robert. Oh, Tell you what, Ray, you've caught me here because I haven't had a look at what the um, at what happened in the games last night. <laughs> so, uh, and also by the time most people are listening to this podcast, Ray, um, 
It will be, um, it will be up. Look, Marazan Cap is an absolutely phenomenal cricketer. What I like about her is almost from the first time I saw her, a lot of the women play really good, but they're <clears throat> quite obviously amateur or semi-professional. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean it in, it's quite clear that this is something they do, but they do other things. Marazan is one of those people that, you know, even if she never got pay- played for cricket, she'd be like, in club cricket, she'd be the most professional one, right? She's just one of those players. And I think because of that, she gets the absolute most out of her game. Um, I've actually, I'm desperate to get her on a podcast. I, I should send her a message um, shortly, try and get her on a podcast. I'd love to talk to her about also the duality of Marazan Cap, I find really interesting. So, you know, you, you follow her Instagram and her Twitter, and she's soft and she's, you know, um, uh, she's a normal human person. When she's out on the middle, she's very, very fierce. And, I, yeah, I find that the, the, the dichotomy there really interesting. The fact that she was professional at a time, I mean, now the Shil- uh, Shil- South African women's team is so good, it's um, it's not a surprise that she's like this. But for anyone like you and me, Ray, who have been following South African women's group for a long time, she was like this when they were an absolute shambles. I, I just I find her a fan, fascinating cricketer and a fantastic cricketer. Um, and uh, as far as the round robin goes, uh, obviously Australia's going to make it. Uh, England had the worst run at the start and South Africa had the better run at the start. West Indies played very good. I wonder if they're starting to drop back. Um, I, I really like New Zealand. It, I, I think it's a fascinating tournament so far. Um wish I knew what the result was from last night, but um, I think it's been a fascinating tournament for so far. The important thing is that this is a really important women's world cup because it's played in a terrible time zone for England. And that's genuinely been the biggest market for women's cricket. So taking that away from this is, I think, and then still having such a successful tournament, Bangladesh have obviously played good at times as well, which is really, really important. I just think that the tournament has been spectacular and it doesn't really matter who's going to make the round robin because chances are Australia will win it anyway. But um, if if somehow Australia lost in one of those knockout games, again, you know, it might take it. If England didn't make the final four and Australia got knocked out in one of those games, I just wonder what it could do for women's cricket around the world. Um, it would be spectacular. Kennedy says, why don't teams get funkier with their batting lineups in tests? There is the one time when Bradman reversed the batting order and smashed 270 for number seven, but it seems rare otherwise. Uh, is it an area where white ball thinking could bring in advancements to test strategy? Okay. That Bradman one is because of uncovered pitches. When we had uncovered pitches, we certainly had more batting lineup flexibility. Once we went away from that, two things happened. Uh, the first one is that batting lineups naturally didn't move as much because you didn't need to move them as much. Uh, and secondly, what happens in that era is people start to say, I'm a number three and I'm a number four and I'm a number five and I'm a number six. And that filters when batting lineups are a little bit more uh, lucid. Is lucid the right word? Uh, flexible, um, uh, you know, loosey goosey. Uh, and at that stage, I don't think players thought as much about their batting positions as they do now, where it's, it almost becomes part of your identity. And what happened was that that filtered down to younger crickets. So you now get people, you know, you now get ten year olds going, "Oh, well, I'm in number three, and I'm in, and it's and it's nonsense." And my best um, thing, and I, you know, I've talked to some pretty high level people about this. I think a lot of analysts believe, like um, you do, Kennedy, that there should be more movement uh, within that. But I've talked to, you know, a lot of analysts and, and everyone, and it's really tough to get people to change. But here's my perfect example of this: 
there was a period where Strauss and Cook were doing brilliantly for England, and their number three was Jonathan Trott. The idea of Jonathan Trott is really, he's not a number three in a classical sense. He's more like a backup opener number three, uh, which is more an England way of having a number three. If you lose an early wicket, no doubt you want Jonathan Trott to go out. And not just an early wicket. Realistically, especially in England, if you haven't put 150 runs on the board, you pro- or 120 runs on the board, you probably definitely want Jonathan Trott. If your opener's put on 200, you definitely want KP to come out. Right. And so straight away, you have a different, you have a different skill sets uh, available to you. I would say that if you look at modern batting, so I even go back further than modern batting, probably post war batting, most of the players bat in the positions they do because of the skills that they have. So your flexible batting lineup probably doesn't work most times because there is a reason why the number five is at number five and not number three. And that's probably because they struggle with the new ball. Uh, there's a reason why the number three is that number three, and it's probably because they don't like to start as as often against spin or whatever it may be, right? And I think in that particular, that's the reason that batting lineups kind of end up what they do. But in extreme examples, there are times when you m- you might have your wicketkeeper uh, at number seven, or maybe a, maybe a bowling rounder at number seven, who is actually a very very good player of the moving ball. Now they're not going to average 50 or 45 or even 40 if they bat up the order. They're still going to average 30 or 35 um, or even 25, right? But they might be very good against the lateral moving ball. Well, if you're two for 10 or 10 for two, sorry, everyone, uh, you probably would prefer in that situation to have your um, uh, bat player come out and play. And I think that's a very, very fair um, uh, way of looking at it. Just batters are very, very precious with these batting positions. I, you know, they really are. Look, I have enough trouble convincing them in T20 to move around Kennedy. So, Test cricket's hard, but I agree with you. But I also understand why it happen- doesn't it hasn't happened as much as it, it could. But in the future, I think it should happen more often. All right, let's get into some live questions. Vamsi, hey man, how's it going? Very good. What's your question? I've been watching a lot of South Africa cricket and. Considering how much bullshit they're going through, it is impressive the good teams they're able to put out. Both the men's and the women's team, they've been incredible. What are your thoughts on that? You can't stop talent at a certain point, right? And the South African system, I'm going to take the women's system out of this for a bit, but the men's system is always going to produce talent. Like I've said this before, that if you had a... Uh, if you were a T20, um, you know, franchise owner or an analyst or a scout, you know, one of the best places to find talent is literally uh, not the franchise um, stuff, but the outer um, part of South African cricket, the guys who haven't even had a go in franchise cricket yet. There's some phenomenally talented players there that partly due to, you know, the way the quota system works, partly the way due to the way that the franchise system works aren't getting through. Uh, they also have a very good climate for cricket. They have a great private school system for cricket. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things in their advantage. Uh, you know, when it comes, uh, you know, when it comes down to that. Plus, they have a lot of people. You know, they they do have 50 million people, and they're an outdoor country. Um, I think that's probably fair to say of most of the southern hemisphere places, but you know, probably even more so of South Africa and Australia than say New Zealand. Um, so I think all those things play in 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 their in their advantage. Where they have struggled, especially over the last couple of years, is with no real good management, uh, with other 
political issues sitting over their heads um, with, you know, no one really knew even if their coach was going to stick around, right? Um, Graham Smith's been under the gun. They haven't been able to keep AB de Villiers. They had the Colpack situation, all those sorts of things that other teams haven't had. Means that their their record international levels a bit more spotty. Uh, the other thing that they've really struggled in, I can't remember, I, don't, I have to have a look, but I, they've really struggled to find good batters over the last five or six years. Um, Dean Elgar, Quentin de Kock, um, am I missing someone? I mean, Faf, Faf fell off a cliff. Temba never really stood up the way that they thought he was going to be. Rassi's a good trier, but probably like, you know, not a, you know, a, a, a more of a replacement level player than a star at test level, especially. You know, so there's probably, you know, a little bit there where they're just not quite at the level that you would want them to be at. But uh, look at their bowling lineup. Like Nokia and Rabada on their own. They had Philander for a long time. They've now, they've probably got the best three spinners they've had since 1905. Um, You know, so, you know, layer on layer on layer, I think they've done really well. The women, I'm going to talk about slightly different. Women's really interesting. Their women were trash right? I remember trying to work out why the South African women were so bad. And literally all I got was that there were too many white women in the team and they were afraid of, you know, that people were afraid of pushing a white sporting team. Luckily that changed, but they did a thing that's very similar to what England did and it works in the short term and then it sort of drops off. And what they did was they basically semi-professionalized a group of 15 to 25 women. That gets you really good short-term results, and that's what the South African women have done. On top of that, they've been able to supplement that by traveling around the world and getting slightly better. My worry is that this is a golden generation of South African women's cricket and that the next generation will drop back, and what happens then, right? That's my worry. Hopefully it doesn't happen. There's some, certainly some talented younger players coming through as well, but it doesn't look like they've, you know, it looks like the majority of their best players are 30-plus, Um uh, and on the, you know, the downhill slope of their careers. Like I, I've been saying this might be a last dance type situation for the South African women. Um, that's my worry with them. But, you know, they did, they, they, uh, if Cricket South Africa was slow to move with the women, when they did move, they made very good short-term decisions, I think, with the women. How that goes long-term, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. But I do believe that they are very, um, across the board, you know, South African cricket has run horribly. Um, and they probably made more good decisions in the women than they have in the men. And I hope that that pays off. But, you know, it, pe- people always say to me, you underestimate South Africa. And I say, I don't underestimate South Africa. I know that they can, they're, they're basically, South Africa is like a slightly worse version of Australia in that they could win a test match kind of anywhere in the world at any time, but they just don't have the batting that consistently make runs to win consistently. And that's what you need. Bowlers allow you to win any test match at any time. And bowlers are generally what win you series, but batters are what you will allow you to be consistent um, from series to series. And uh, I can't see how that, you know, look, you know, I mean, Keegan Peterson's what, 30, Rassi's 30. You're talking about old damaged players. Who, who's the, the new guy that made the 100 in New Zealand as well? You know, um, these are older guys coming through. And Devin Conway is another perfect example of this. I know he didn't come through in South Africa. There seems to be a missing bit between 20 and 28 with their batters uh, where they're not developing the way that they should be. And I can't, I could not tell you what that is. I'm not in their system enough to see if there's a franchise problem or a coaching problem or, or what that is. But um, the fact that all these guys seem to be developing really late tells me that there's something going on within South African cricket when it comes to their batting specifically. With South Africa, do you ever think there'll be actual parity in the team racially? Because 
it's a special country. It's very different from any other country in the world. The separation between racial lines is so extreme. Do you ever see like a South African theme that's like, I don't know, 80% black? I don't see that happening. Do you? Yes. No, I do because um, eventually, <laughs> as well, it depends on what you mean. It would take a long time. And by then, we might not be playing international sport. But <laughs> yes, I do because. We've already seen. So, so if you're in, if you're investing in talent, right? We South Africa is already making the most out of three groups, three racial groups. The uh, you know the white white people in general, and I'm putting the English and the Afrikaners kind of in that together. Um, uh, the what they call the Cape Coloured um, community, uh, which is you know an incredible community within cricket and has been well, Basil Dolivera, Crom Hendricks, all the way back, and then the Asian community right? They're getting absolutely the most out of that. As cricket becomes more of a business, it's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, what part of the, uh, the, the system are we not getting the most talent out of? As franchise cricket becomes bigger in South Africa, as franchise cricket becomes bigger around the world, where are you going to invest your money, right? So you're going to find perhaps black townships, black, black regions, perhaps um, whatever it may be, and invest in the cricketers there using the same kind of methods that you made South African cricketers really good in the other three racial um, areas that we've all talked about. So yes, I do think it will happen, um, but that could take forever. And the South African government, the, the, the quote, you know, I've done this on the quotas before. I can understand quotas and I fully back the ideas behind quotas. But if you really want there to be a lot of great black young players in your team, um, copy what the school system is and put a couple of million dollars into having, um, you know, uh, educated uh, black kids who play all sports. But, you know, cricket is obviously one of those that is struggling more um, on, on, on uh, scholarships. That's what I would do. But, but they're probably not going to do that because it costs money and they'd rather just scream at people about quotas rather than that. Because that's what politicians do, right? Politicians look for short, short answers. And what I'm talking about is a 10 or 15 year plan, if we're being honest. I mean, in that area of the world, cricket is, a, is definitely a rich people's sport. And also, yes. I'm done. So, shout out to the Joker. But, man, God damn it, Luca's been good this year, so I'm going to ride the Mavs. <laughs> yeah, Joker's been good. But by the time he gets to the playoffs, he's going to be exhausted. And it won't do us any good anyway. Sorry for the Denver Nuggets chats, everyone. Thanks for your question. All right, who have we got next? Raid. R-A-E-D. I'm saying that as Raid. Am I he Raid? It's right. Yeah, yeah, you got right. that. Right. I was right the first time. I was actually wrong both times, probably. What's your question? <laughs> I'm just used to saying that it's right living in Australia here. <laughs> but yeah, um, Jared, my question for you was, since Fawad Alam made his stunt team, I've been watching yep. quite intently. But I just can't figure out, is he a good batter or is he just shit? No, no, he's definitely a good batter. You, you can't make the amount of runs that he's made, even domestically, uh, by being an averagely talented player. He's certainly a good player. Um, he's probably got some, I, I would say, and I'm, I'm trying to think, like a lot of sort of slightly above average test talent players, he's incredibly strong at the things he's strong at and probably quite weak at the things he's not as good at, right? Which, which is, uh, I'm trying to think of, maybe someone like Ian Bell is a good example of a player like that. You know, that, that sort of Justin Langer might be another, uh, you know, a, a good example of a player like that. Maybe Rahane is another one, right? They're definitely above average talents. But that thing that stops them from going to that, probably that next level consistently, it's just the things that they don't do right. Or, or And I think that's probably um, part of the problem here. I also think that 
he spent too long playing in first class cricket, right? Like there, there is a, you know, I've talked about, you know, we talked about this before, I suppose the Graham Hick um, one is the best example of that, where you get to a point where you're not challenged anymore if you are an above average talent. And you see it a lot in county cricket. You see these players who they just knock it around after a certain, you know, it just doesn't matter as much to them. And when they get to the, the upper level, I remember seeing Jesse Ryder after he played about two or three years of county cricket facing Liam Plunkett and like being all over the place. And I was like, at his best, Jesse Ryder is not, uh, you know, Liam Plunkett's a fantastic bowler, obviously, and he was bowling really good that day. But at his best, Jesse Ryder shouldn't be worried about Liam Plunkett. But he, he'd been facing, you know, I was going to say, you know, he'd been facing Darren Stevens and, um, you know, and Tim Murta, right? And suddenly he had uh, Liam Plunkett bowling to him. And I think that sort of stuff happens a lot more. And I think that, um, I think in this particular case that that is what happened. A player got stuck in a system that was slightly beneath them for a long time. Um, and it hasn't helped him develop as a cricketer in the way that it probably should. So is it is it kind of like developing bad habits just because, you're much better than everyone around you. You kind of drop down a bit to their level. What what sport do you play? Any sports? I play a bit of cricket in the nets for you know bowling to my friends. Okay, if you play cricket bowling with your friends, let's. If you had a younger brother who was like four or five years younger than you, right, and that was the person that you, oh there you go, and that's the person you're playing all the time. You probably get into certain habits where you might step across the line to whip him to the lake side because you know he doesn't have a certain delivery that that will. That will get that will get a leading edge from you, or you go on the front foot automatically, right? Because you know he won't be able to ping you with a short ball or whatever it is. You know, a lot of the bad habits I got into cricket uh, was from facing my friends in the nets. They they were quite good bowlers, but they were quite one dimensional bowlers, right? And I could get on the rock on the front foot against them quite comfortably. And of course, you get out in a game, and suddenly someone is a yard quicker and hits you with a short one, and you're on the front foot. It's that sort of stuff. Now you think about how many balls that he's faced of these players who are slightly beneath him. And it's not that Pakistan first-class cricket is terrible or anything like that, although obviously it wasn't, during his era, it wasn't as strong as it should be, although Imran Khan's going to ruin it in a different way, but we digress. But I always say, you basically have two bowlers in most first-class teams who are around test match quality, and then you have an all-rounder probably who bowls a lot of overs who's nowhere near test match quality. And then you might have a developing bowler or an old bowler who's still in the team because they're handy, right? Um, and quite often you won't even have, you know, one test match quality bowler. You, uh, sorry, two test match. You might only have one. Um, and so there's a drop-off. And so quite often you play out the good bowler and then you feast on everyone else. You get to test match cricket. There's no feasting because everyone is the best bowler from their first class team, right? And... Um, and there's a really good podcast I did with Abhinav Mukund, and he was talking about this. And he said, when you get to 50 of first-class cricket, you basically make 100, right? Unless you make it, unless you just stuff up. Whereas when you make a 50 in test cricket, you, the next 50 is still really tough, it, it, you know, because there's no let-off. Getting past, you know, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Australia is a really good example. Um, South Africa, when they don't use Rabada. You know, if you're in first-class cricket, especially outside of Asia, if you can withstand the new ball spells... And they could be quite, you know, really good new ball bowlers um, in first-class cricket. But if you can, you know, handle that, you know, from then on in, you're basically just milking the runs until you get bored. Um, or someone does something spectacular to get you out. Uh, that's not the case at Test Cricket. Like, you know, against Australia, your first-change bowler might be Pat Cummins. You know, against South Africa, your first-change 
bowler might be someone like Rabada or Nokia. Um, uh, Neil Wagner for New Zealand. Um, in you know, in India, it's you know Ashwin. Um, even even in you know someone like Sri Lanka who doesn't have a very good team, it's Embaldinia, M- M- right? Like there's some really good quality players. So that step up is should be harder. And if he if he pl- if he hadn't have uh, what blunted his game, I suppose is the best way of putting it. And that's the way they talked about it with Graham Hick. If he hadn't have blunted his game. Um, he would probably be slightly sharper and look slightly better at test cricket. But absolutely no doubt for me that he's a test quality player and a, and a very, very good player with that. Uh, but thanks for your question. All right. Thank you, James. I'm going to go uh, Vishwanath and see if I'm right. Hey, you, mate. Hey, Jared. So I kind of restarted watching cricket over the pandemic, essentially. It's a bit of a question about spin and direction it's taken, right? So... When I was watching cricket in, in, in the early 2000s or the mid-2000s, whenever I saw spin, the degree of spin that I saw from spinners was a lot greater. When compared to, let's say, for example, if you compare Harbhajan and, and Ashwin, or if you compare Yuzvendar and, and uh, let's say, Piyush Chavla or somebody like that, even though Yuzvendar is probably a better bowler than Piyush uh, at the end of the day, but the degree of spin that he got was a lot larger. Is that, is that something to do with how techniques have changed? No. I can tell you exactly what it is. Two main things. One, LBW is much more important because the bowlers that you used to watch didn't get LBWs because if you got on the front foot, you weren't you couldn't be given out LBW in the old days. Um, and the other thing is the spin is way quicker. Rashid Khan bowls 27 kilometers an hour quicker than, um, than Shane Warne. The quicker you are, the less spin you're going to get. Makes sense. Yeah, so spin, if you have a look on, on average, spin, uh, have a look. Someone put this up the other day. It went viral on Twitter, Bisham Beatty bowling. Honestly, have a look at the pace of it. If he's bowling at 75 kilometers an hour, I'd be shocked. And Akshar Patel's, what, 20 kilometers quicker than that? Um, Jadej is probably 25 almost. So spin has, spin has changed massively over the last couple of years. Actually, I think Ashwin was... Yeah, Ashwin's not slow, right? I mean... Compared to Harbhajan, I would have thought Ashwin is consistently uh, faster than him. Um, but I think everyone's faster. Uh, it's one reason why Matt Parkinson has been kept out by England. Uh, but thanks for your question. Jamie, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? No, I can. What's your question? Okay, I haven't thought this one out. But um, uh, Talk Sport 2, which is very different from Test Match Special, I like both of them. What do you think? Do you like Test Match Special? And what do you think they could learn from your broadcast? <laughs> oh, they are going to hate this question. Uh, look, I've got a lot of friends who work for Test Match Special, so I certainly wouldn't dump on it. I always felt that as a cricket fan, Test Match Special wasn't for cricket fans. And I think that when you talk to them honestly, they will say that it's it's not for it's for Test Match Special fans rather than cricket fans in a way, um, which is fine. But when I moved over to the UK, I didn't find it particularly engaging radio. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about what people were wearing and uh, a lot of talk about cakes, obviously, and uh, all that sort of stuff, which obviously works to their audience. So I'm not having a go. But from a cricket perspective, I was like, we can do better. Um, I don't know how much you know about my history with TalkSport, Jamie, but um, they came to me, John Norman, who runs um, TalkSport, came to me um, and they paid me a consultancy fee to help set up TalkSport Radio. So I, uh, yes, TalkSport Cricket, sorry. Um, so I obviously think TalkSport Cricket is the greatest radio that's ever been put together by an absolute genius. Um, uh, well, that, John's probably the genius, but, um, but you know, certainly I'll take any credit I can for being involved in that. Um, we, 
we were very mindful of two things. One, that people didn't think of TalkSport as a cricket place, rightly. Uh, and two, that we didn't want to be test match um, special. We wanted it to be something quite different. We wanted it to be a lot more crickety. Um, you know, they have a scorer, we have an analyst. Um, we also obviously have access to a scorer as well. Um, so that's a big difference. Another thing was we went out of our way to make it, we, we wanted it to be intelligent cricket chat. That was the, the, the way that we looked at it. Um, probably slightly different kinds of voices, um, slightly different kinds of players. I think, you know, Goffey was always going to be part of it because he came from um, TalkSport. But once you had Goffey, you know, the ability to have a different kind of um, core around him, I think was really important. Um, they, you know, TalkSport got Neil Manthorpe on. Now, at that stage, Neil Manthorpe wasn't even being used by BBC. I think he might have still been doing ABC. But TalkSport got Neil Manthorpe because we thought he was the best cricket commentator in the world <clears throat> that's not always why people get hired for cricket commentary gigs neil manthorpe was not a big name um in fact when they started talksport talksport had a look at the original uh lineup and saw my name gareth bassey's name and neil manthorpe's name and were like what is this this is going to go horribly wrong um and i think all three of us hopefully have proved our way so it was we, we were trying to make it very different um, knowingly than uh, Test Match Special. Uh, test, test Match Special is a different project. Look, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to uh, very key people in, in Test Match Special about how they could make changes. It's hard to change a thing that's been going for so long and is so well-loved, um, but they don't think theirs is a perfect product. And obviously TalkSport, we think, you know, exactly the same. There are certainly ways that we can get better. Um, uh, we probably don't, you know, we commentate for a couple of months and then disappear. Um, so we can't always build on the things that we'd like to do at TalkSport. But um, our big thing when me and John were getting together was how do we make it a, a cricket broadcast, not a broadcast that has cricket on it? And how do we make it as smart as possible um, compared to some other broadcasts around the world, which I suppose have become a little bit more light entertainment shows we wanted it to be smart because we want we also wanted it to be very crickety so that people knew that that's what it was going to be so it's a very different kind of broadcast than test match special and that was completely by design thank you great answer no worries cheers mate sit off are you there yeah so my uh, question is that i heard your spotify about you know that podcast about all-rounders and how biz doesn't have all-rounders and cricket has always had all-rounders and probably will have around in the future. Look, here's the part where I differ with you a little bit, I think. Uh, you were saying that uh, cricket 20 years on, if, if cricket is still what we know it as today, if it's still past the same product, it will not have around us because of the hyper-professionalism of everyone in the game. But I think because uh, all, you know, all-rounders have pushed so much in cricket, like even nowadays, I think cricket I think uh, you talk about the bottom Pringle continuum, if I'm not wrong. And in that, mm -hmm. I think what we'll see is that we'll see players coming on the extremes of that continuum. Like we'll see, uh, I don't think if there's a player with the capabilities of Sowell or uh, Keith Miller or players like that, I think we'll still see those players because that's just, they're just too good not to be proper rounders. And because we, in cricket, we appreciate those skills. And we will appreciate those skills in the future as well. We'll see that. But I think apart from that, we'll see only see, you know, Shardul Thakur type all-rounders. 
who can, uh, I think you said earlier as well, who can give cameos in a game. Uh, and we'll yep. not see any above average or average all-rounders. We'll only see like proper part-time all-rounders or legends. Yeah, but that's kind of what's already happened. But I mean, Shardul's not an all-rounder, right? You can't bat him in your top six or seven. Uh, I don't know. His average is down to low 20s now. He's averaging first-class crickets around 18. Um, he had a boom the same way that Tim Bresnan did. He's not an all-rounder. Um, he's a bowler who can bat a little bit. We'll always get those sorts of cricketers. Keith Miller, if he came through the game now, with the speed that he bowled, I just don't know how he'd have enough time to practice on his batting to be a top four batter, right? Garfield Sobers would not be used in the same way today. Um, he was bowling 37 overs a game. Um, absolutely no way you would use an all-rounder in that way, in this, in this way anymore. Um, and now you're looking at, there are, I, I know professional batters who are coming through now who are spending 60 hours a week working on their batting. How can an all-rounder do that? It is physically impossible. So they'd have to be the world's, they'd have to be like Otani, um, the, the baseball that you were referencing before, in order to be that good. It's just unlikely, mate. The amount of practice and the amount of skill and the, and the amount of specialization that's going into cricket, uh, if, you, if you look at the history of cricket from, you know, the, in, in, the, in the 1800s, everyone was an all-rounder, right, through to now. All-rounders just get, get, keep getting fewer and fewer. And that's because cricket gets more professional and the skills get more hyper um, and you have to train more and all those sorts of things. You see the same thing in women's cricket and associate cricket. Uh, so I, I'd be shocked um, if there's as many all-rounders um, in the next generation as are in, as in this one. I don't think they'll ever go away because I think there'll always be a financial imperative, as you were sort of saying, to have them. But it's going to be so hard. Put it this way. My guess is that if you gave Ben Stokes as much practice time as he'd like, he'd probably work out how to bowl with a new ball. Ben Stokes doesn't bowl very well with a new ball, hates it, right? But he hasn't spent enough time practicing with it. If he was a full-time bowler, he would have to have worked that out. That's limiting his ability, his effectiveness as a bowler. And he's an otherworldly athlete. And so like most all-rounders that in the future, they're probably going to have to be otherworldly athletes or incredibly uh, technically adapted to divergent skills. It's just not that realistic, I don't think, going ahead. I understand what you're saying, that there's always going to be a money um, thing, but there may not be because we will eventually get our first format of cricket, which will have a squad within the next five to ten years. We will eventually get substitutions in, in maybe not test cricket, but certainly probably in one-day cricket and T20 cricket and these sorts of things. All-rounders might become less important at that point. Uh, that doesn't mean that a, an athlete like Keith Miller or Ben Stokes um, Aubrey Faulkner, those sorts of people won't still exist. Um, but they're going to find it a lot harder to be successful at both skills because being very good at bowling, being very good at batting, are just different physical um, skills are required. Uh, thanks for your question. Ashish is back. Hello. Hello, mate. What's your question? Yeah, so, like, I just I was just wondering why aren't, like, in like international series, like I think cricket is only a unique sport wherein international cricket is given more importance than your franchise or domestic cricket. So I was just wondering, like now in the future, I can see that franchise cricket will be given more importance than international cricket. So why aren't the number of matches per series? So like in test matches, why aren't there like standardized between like three to four rather than two, three, four or five number of Test matches and similarly for ODIs as well as T20s. That way, you're, so if you standardize the number of 
matches per series in whatever format, it, it reduces the fatigue, I feel, and maybe it increases the revenue for countries wherein you would normally play only like two matches. Like So you take the example of India, Sri Lanka. They would uh, they recently played two test matches. So if Sri Lanka were to get an extra test match, it would give them exposure. And not, not only that, a little extra money as well. So I was just wondering why it's not standardized more. Because India don't want to tire out their players against a suboptimal team that won't help them politically or financially? I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not saying like India in general, but I'm just saying... But it, but it is India in general, right? It's India in general. It's it's England in general. It's New Zealand. New Zealand don't want to play four test matches against the team because it'll cost them too much to put it up unless it's India. It's the same thing, right? There's a financial reason why this doesn't happen. Essentially, what you're talking about is why is an international cricket a league? An international isn't, cricket isn't a league because none of the teams want it to be a league. It should be a league, and it should be run far better than it is, but they want to run it bilaterally because they want to control over it because they're all sociopaths. Poor organizations who are terrified of um, losing any control over the game. And because of that, we have this shit system. There's your answer. <laughs> Thanks for your question, mate. Devinish says, Pussy Shaw just failed a fitness test. Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, people bring up the fact that some of the great players of your would have struggled with, which I think is an unfair comparison. If these players' ability uh, depended on passing a test, they would have made the effort to pass it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> WG Grace was a hurdler and a footballer. He was an incredible athlete. We sort of know him as the big old guy. And also, he, he he was so far ahead of the game, he could get um, big. But he was a good athlete when he started. Tom Bradman was a fantastic athlete. Um, yeah, there's always an Inza Manuel Hark or an Juno Ronatunga or uh, Mike Gatting. Um, uh, you know, there's certainly been players throughout the history of our game that have been less athletic. And, you know, in batting specifically, there's certainly a... Um, there's certainly a part of it. Um, I mean, there are unfit players in every sport. You know, I would say playing basketball when you're unfit is really hard, and yet James Harden regularly does it with a dad bot. Um, you see lots of NBA players like that. You occasionally see, you know, Premier League footballers where you just go, how is he at this level, but he's so technically gifted. Um, it's getting harder and harder to not have a supremely athletic frame and play any top-level sport in the world. You know, perhaps, and depending on how you feel about darts, I suppose. But, uh, uh, but you're right. I mean, it's part of the game, and it's silly to sit back and not do it. It's also fairly easy. Um, you know, I know one player who said to me, he just cut out carbs um, and beat all their fitness tests um, and, and, and skin fold tests almost straight away. Um, a lot of it is bad habits. I remember when I went to the West Indies, so many of the players, even the players were really good for physiques, were still drinking full-fat Coke. And I'm like, you're just pouring sugar in your body. Um, so a lot of it is, you know, learning new things. Um, it, it, in fact, there's a really interesting story. I think Fidel Fernando tells this one about, I think it was him, or it might've been Rex Clementine. One of, one of them was telling me about this, that when Chaminda Vass became the bowling coach of Sri Lanka, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, probably now, the first thing he did was teach him about diet, right? There are a lot of players who don't know that much about diet. Um, so I certainly think that that is a, uh, is, is a major part of it. Keshu, if you're there, mate. So I just wanted to get your views on uh, the Virat Kohli situation. I mean, a player like him who would... Sorry, I completely lost who... Which situation? Virat Kohli situation. Virat Kohli. Okay, yep. Yeah, so a player like him who essentially in his heydays used to have, you know, you know, three centuries or a tour maybe 
and now it's been almost three years since he has scored a century. So uh, some people might say, okay, he's mentally not there uh, since the captaincy saga took place, but it, that happened only in the last few months, right? So what do you attribute this to? I mean, a player like him going so long without any century? Test cricket has fundamentally changed in that period. And I would say that it's affected him more than it has most players. It's affected Steve Smith massively as well. It's affected lots of players. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, you know, so many players, the way that they played beforehand doesn't work anymore. It's possible that in Virat Kohli's case that he thinks he'll be able to bat his way through this in a way that maybe Steve Smith was willing to make slightly different changes. And as Ali, um, someone else who was really affected by it, made slight changes. It's also possible that he can't make those changes because, as I've written before, his main skill was being able to drive on the up against balls outside off stump to put pressure back on the bowlers. If he doesn't have that, I don't think he has a strong enough defense just outside off stump against the, especially with the wobble ball era, to be able to maintain uh, long innings. Could also just be dumb luck, right? Like, I mean, it's not like his batting has fallen off a cliff. It's not like Michael Vaughan. When, you know, that period at the end of Michael Vaughan's career where you're just like, why are you even walking out on the ground? You are not going to make a run here. I've never felt like that watching Vera. In fact, I've seen him play some very good innings um, in that period of time. So the lack of hundreds is probably more down to dumb luck than anything else. But the lack of runs altogether is not down to, down to that. The lack of runs altogether is probably the combination of the way that cricket is now currently played and the way that he currently played cricket. But I'm including all the formats. I mean, you didn't get anything even in ODI as a... Ah. I mean, I, to be, I'm not, you know, if he hasn't got a, a, an ODI 100, I don't know. I, I, I haven't looked at that enough to, to worry about it. But I, I'm more worried about test cricket because that's the one where, that has the most obvious one. It's just possible that, you know, he's, some, players have, uh, some players can play at their peak for, you know, 10 years. Some players can play at their peak for two or three. All, all players are completely different in the way that they age, um, in the way that they handle things. One thing I would say is when I was around in Bangalore in 2018, they called him the world's busiest man. From that point forward, I don't think he's been the same cricketer that he used to be. It is possible he has not spent as much time on his cricket as he should have because of all the nonsense that is around him. But it's also possible that it's just a technical thing, natural degradation. One last quick one. A friend of mine who has played Ranji, so he gave a very interesting perspective about it. He said the time when Virat Kohli was up and coming, doing the scam in age and all, official age and all, was very common. So he thought that, you know, if he's 34 on paper, he's probably 37 or something. So maybe his reflexes have slowed down. That's why he's not in. I mean, that's a little bit, you know, grassy knoll stuff for me. I mean, that sounds just like a nonsense conspiracy, right? Not to mention the fact that Misber was still playing very good afterwards. As I said, players age differently. He could be exactly, th- he could be the exact age that he says he is. At 34, a lot of people were past it. There are a lot of cricketers in the world who bet- after the age of 31 are not very good, right? We, because he's so good, we just assume he'll be that good forever. That's not what the history of cricket has shown us. We've had lots of batters like Graham Gooch and Misbah Al-Haq that have gone on to be great batters into a ridiculously long age. We've got other players who've aged out far earlier. So even if he's his real age, which I have no reason to believe he's not, at 34, at 32, at 33, you can still be losing what you had that made you very good. Even if you're really fit, it's not just about that. It's, you know, there's, there's a whole host of things out there. And it could just be a technical thing and have absolutely nothing to do with age as well. But I don't know. Uh, thanks for your question. Bhaskar? Yeah, so I've been watching the women's World Cup week, and I'm very surprised the 
number of drop catches happening every match. You know, there are at least four or five chances happening. And, they, uh, and I know that there's COVID and uh, uh, stuff like that. But these girls have had a lot of practice. So do you think women, it's just a world they're women, pressure? Busker. They're, they're women, not girls. Sorry, sorry. So yeah, women. I don't know. I mean, England drop a lot of catches and they practice a lot. I think that a lot of catches are dropped. I mean, have you ever watched an IPL game? Multiple drop catches in every game. I would expect women's fielding to be slightly worse than men's fielding just because fielding is a professionalism thing, isn't it? Yeah, obviously, you have naturally talented people and not naturally talented people. But, you know, in the past, how much time would... If, if, you're, a, if you're a woman over the age of 28 uh, and you're not from Australia, really, how much time would you have spent in your life practicing fielding um, early on? Not much, right? You, if you had a chance to train, you would have spent almost all your time batting or bowling because you wouldn't have had much time to train. So it's only the last couple of years that our fielding has come. And I think women's fielding has certainly changed from an athleticism point of view and a run-out point of view massively. So catching is, a, you know, might fall behind, but it could just be one of those things. You could just be watching the games where there's a few extra drops or it could just be a tournament where people are dropping the ball more. Do you know what I mean? That doesn't necessarily mean that the fielding is is poor. It could just be, you know, I mean, if you watch the, if you watch the last World uh, Men's World Cup in the T20, you'd say, wow, people can't hit the ball off the square anymore. Look at all these low scores. It's really bad, right? And we know that's not what T20 cricket's about, and it's actually the opposite. So sometimes these things just happen. Um, one other thing I would say is fielding is probably one of the few things that you get a chance to think about. i oh, sorry, catching specifically. You get a chance to think about when the ball's in the air. A lot of these women are being watched more than they usually are. You know, the viewerships uh, at the grounds is quite good, but the viewerships on TV and everything, there's more pressure on them. So it could just be one of those things. But my guess is that women's fielding is probably going to be slower to develop outside of the athletic side of thing. So, yeah, I um, uh, but I but I haven't seen enough. So you might be completely right um, that this is happening. I haven't seen enough to, to 100% um, uh, work that out. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I would have thought that there are plenty of reasons why that has happened. Thanks for your question, mates. Uh, there was just one from CS who says, a while ago, Roger Sumrall appointed Paddy Upton as their team catalyst. It's an interesting title. Can you explain, explain what that role is? I have absolutely no idea what a team catalyst is. Is it a welfare officer? I think we've seen, um, in, in other sports. I don't know. Uh, it, uh, it's a great title. Uh, so sometimes with teams, they were like, oh, you should just come up with your own title because you're a different kind of analyst than we've had before. And I'm like, yeah, but then everyone's going to think I'm a knob. Not that I'm saying people are thinking that Paddy Upton's a knob. Um, although there will be some people who will think Paddy Upton's a knob based on that thing. That is how cricket works. But And you see it in basketball too when like they, they stopped calling people the general manager and they started coming up with you know, very artistic ways of saying uh, general manager. Um, look, I have absolutely uh, no idea um, what a team catalyst is. And I'm not, if we're being completely honest, in a rush to find out what that is. <laughs> but, you know, Paddy Upton, I'm assuming it's probably a preparation thing or a psychological thing or a motivational type thing, knowing uh, Paddy Upton. But, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, thank you to everyone for coming on the podcast. Uh, again, a great fun. Uh, huge thanks to Sports Social and to who are all our sponsors? Manscaped, 20% off. Use the code REDINCA or one word. Shave those testicles with the confidence of Jaden Seals. I'm not saying he shaves his, I, you know, but he delivers very good balls for, for uh, someone who hasn't delivered them very often.
I got completely lost there. Anyway, Red Inca is the code word to get that. What else have we got? Bodyline t-shirts. Thank you to them. Huge thanks to everyone on Buy Me A Coffee and obviously the Patreons. You know, there are some things happening with the podcast. Uh, we're still looking at bringing in a third one. So if you can back us on Patreon, become a patron of Patreon, whatever that's called, we're moving towards hopefully getting a third podcast. And and there's some other hopefully uh, cool developments coming through in, in the next little while on the podcast. But huge thanks to everyone who's been supporting these. And, you know, if a lot of people just listen to the Wagon Wheels, but, you know, listen to the Red Inca podcast as well if you get a chance. The last one on Wazim Khan will tell you a lot about Pakistani cricket um, and Wazim Khan's role in what was a crazy time for cricket there. Thank you so much to everyone, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu.